Welcome to Women Make Science Fiction. I'm Amy Chambers. And I'm Lyle Skeens. And we're your hosts until they replace us with robots. Or men. So uh, this is a post-hiatus um, return to the podcast for us. Uh, it's been a strange sort of nine months, I guess, of online teaching and, and virtual uh, learning and communication. And the podcast, despite its capacity to be that just I didn't have space in my brain (laughs) no what what they have asked of academics over the last year is just herculean effort and I can't I I don't even want to know the the mental health the mental illness rates and and all of that it's got to be astronomical in fitting with today's theme Nice link. Uh, so the last two films, um, or two of the last films that we watched uh, before my brain melted, um, were um, a Swedish science fiction called Aniara, um, and the first English language film, which is also coincidentally a science fiction uh, by Claire Denis called High Life. Um, both interesting um, philosophical approaches to science fiction and uh, experiences in space lots of interesting connections between them um but it also sort of made me think then more about how women are represented on screen in science fiction as astronauts as cosmonauts where they fit into those particular narratives uh, in part inspired by a brilliant um special edition of the journal science fiction film and television from 2019 which looks specifically at female astronauts and thinking about when we represent space stories um who gets to be part of that particular journey how that journey is changing um and as uh laurie palmer and lisa purse sort of um summarize we've often find a, a suffered to find a we've often struggled to find a place for the female astronauts due to the persistence of a normative and normatively policed gender binary, leaving the women who play astronauts in science fiction, as well as the remarkable real life women who have finally become astronauts for bridge to bridge fiction and reality. This sort of um, connection between the fictional and the fact-based astronauts and the issues surrounding how we think about that space as a masculinized technological space, which then tends to not be considered appropriate or uh, a space for women. Well, nothing is ever engineered for women, right? We're, we're back to this notion of, of uh, women get left out of research. Women are considered small men lots of times. <laughs> and, and so, you know. I ain't a small man. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, I'm perhaps a large man. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, that uh, that they can just make do with with the same things as men, only a bit smaller. And we already know that's not true. I would hope uh, anyone listening knows that's not true um, from seatbelts to clothing to, uh, you know, the spacesuits and, you know, how you reach the instruments. Can you reach them from the seated position? Uh, do you have the the strength to move certain things in terms of upper body strength and leverage and that sort of thing? Uh, as, as well as plumbing, you know, peeing in a spacesuit is different for women and men and, and all these sorts of things. So it's, it's, 
and and it just kind of does get left out and and these films i think it's very interesting in so many films we just completely we just go tra la la in the utopic future of the world everything will be equal um what uh i watching uh katie sackoff's uh another world is it another world yes where it's just everybody has the same clothing the same suits i'm like that's great when everybody's a a lovely hollywood body type and, and all of that but not so much when you're not yeah and even though we've got sort of uh, people like Tilly now on Star Trek Discovery who represent a slight deviation from the tiny Hollywood. I mean, she's no, in no slight. way plus size. She's just slightly bigger than what we've decided is the norm in Hollywood. And the costuming there, you can see that it's been made for her body and there are distinctions in the in the uniforming for Star Trek Discovery in terms of having... Uh, female bodies as part of that sort of experience and I think the way that they they gender and present those are quite interesting I love Tilly and I think it's awesome that they're able to show not only someone who's uh, a a slightly distinct body type uh, but also neurodivergent Um, and and so that's you know she's she's coded in certain ways uh, and that's that's brilliant. And I think we've always kind of had that, right? We read Spock that way uh, as, as Vulcans are coded in certain ways. And so that to me is, is the brilliance of, of Star Trek in any iteration. It's always trying to look forward. <laughs> Rick Berman aside. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. So, I mean, it's very interesting. But of course, in these particular films, it's really interesting to see the particular experience of these women in space uh, because it is a very feminized perspective. Um, High Life, despite its title, has nothing to do with weed. Uh, <laughs> I was like, where's the where's the pot in this movie? Um, but, and, it, and it's all about uh, that a womanly desire really in a place that's not, that's not, thought of as feminine that's not conducive to feminine desire you're only you're only scientist in high life although they are astronauts in the sense that they've been sent into space uh basic plot they've been uh sent on a mission into space to extract alternative energy from a black hole but they're all prisoners and this is a one-way mission um, and the only scientist that we see on screen is this sort of like evil scientist type character played by Juliette Binoche as Dr. Dibbs. Uh, she's killed her family. She's been sent with these other prisoners. And she has this desire for sort of making babies in space, even though she knows that these people are going to die and any of their offspring are going to be sort of sentenced to endless nothingness and there's by the time we get to the end spoilers the only person that can be left behind is Robert Pattinson playing Monty and his daughter Willow and one hopes that they wouldn't procreate together it's not going to they're not starting a new yeah there isn't that future 
yeah there is no, no possible hope. future yeah there's no hope that we're going to develop humanity in in this particular spaceship not the least of which is that there's not enough genetic diversity obviously no. uh and we're not talking about biblical diversity we're talking about actual genetic yes. diversity <laughs> uh and and so it's it's more uh, that exploration of what it means to literally be the last last people uh as far as you know i mean obviously they're not the last humans they don't need to procreate but there's no one else and there's no hope of anyone else ever and so what drives that that biological need that psychological need especially in a place where it is absolutely ridiculous uh to procreate uh but not only that is she's forcing those desires on yes, the people that, around her i was her. so excited when uh Claire Denis announced or it was announced that Claire Denis was doing an English language her first English language film it was going to be science fiction and it was going to have a woman scientist and I was like brilliant all my things amazing and then read more about it and I'm like oh she's a rapist because she yep. takes takes his his sort of sperm without consent and impregnates and you're just like and it's sort of like oh by the way the baby is mine and yours it's just it's so horribly it's pretty horrific. Done. She's she's yeah. quite a horrific character, and obviously, I love Juliette Binoche. She is gorgeous and mesmerizing on screen. But Doctor Dibbs is this simultaneously gorgeous, m- mystical almost character with this crazy long, uh, yeah, hair. she's so witch themed, yeah, that you could draw direct parallels to. Uh, you know, witchcraft and magic and spells and curses and and manipulating men for their evil ways in order to have the devil's spawn. That sort yeah, of it's thing. just yeah. I was like, oh, I mean, it, I mean, it was it's really interesting film. I wouldn't say it was uh, particularly enjoyable. Uh, I introduced it at home <laughs> cinema in Manchester uh, following a course that I'd done there on women in science fiction and it was, I think it was one of the first films that was released um it came after the course had finished um that was a woman directed women in space film and I was like amazing and then trying to do the introduction for it <laughs> trying to like sort of fit it into Claire Denis work was much more straightforward than trying to explain it as science fiction because I think and, and with both of these films there is a focus more on the philosophy than the science or the science fiction uh one of the things that interestingly connects both high life and aniara which is um directed by pella kagerman and i'm really sorry if i'm mispronouncing that and um hugo lilia so it's one of our co-produced um women uh make science fiction films um and pella kagerman talks about the fact that she is an artist and a philosopher and she's interested in um, psychoanalysis and Aniara allowed her to explore those types of themes. Um, Both uh, Pella and Claire talk about Tarkovsky's 1972 film Solaris as a reference point. So um, uh, Pella described Aniara as Solaris on speed, um, taking a lot of these sort of Images of space not as a place of wonder, but as one of drudgery and isolation and sort of depression. So you compare 
Solaris's uh, Tarkovsky Solaris with Kubrick's version of sort of this utopian-ish future in 2001 coming around about the same time that this is sort of more perhaps realistic vision of the drudgery and repetitious nature of being a scientist of being in space that comes out in both of these films I felt. Well I think it's interesting that both both stories uh, put the humans, the crew, the the prisoners, the scientists, they're all on a mission to nowhere. Anyara gets uh, batted off on an unexpected trajectory and there's no there's no hope. They're they're too far off course. They they can't correct. So essentially they're just going to drift off into the you know, unimagined reaches of space, which is actually really realistic. Uh, when we think yeah. about space travel, it's always been representative. Oh, there's a nearby, pl- you know, like kind of like running out of gas. There's a nearby gas station and you'll be able to walk to it or flag down a car or something like that. No, space is New Mexico. There's nothing <laughs> you are going to die in the desert. <laughs> I'm from New Mexico. I can say that. Uh, and and it's, yeah, any little, and it's so vast that any dis- difference in your trajectory, even the most minute error is going to send you, you know, light years off into nothingness. And, and that's, I think, it's really interesting how both these directors embraced that and, and said, what happens in that nothingness? What does that mean? And used it to then reflect back into the characters. Yeah. And it see, there's, there's that potential in Aniara for it to be a generation ship. There is enough diversity on that ship. There are medics. There are There is sort of a certain amount of society that you can build uh, yeah, a within that. There's a community. Uh, when they realize that it's not going to be two weeks or two years or five years or 10 years until something might change, uh, the captain of the Aniara, which is the name of the ship, um, as well as the film, uh, he talks about the fact that they have created their own planet on Aniara. Um, there is a lot of, lot of it's built on consumerism. So it was intended as a cruise ship. So again, narrative for Aniara, we've destroyed planet Earth. The sort of pre-credit credit sequence um, is sort of documentary footage of Earth's destruction. It is an eco-horror. Um, you're getting these very specific images of the destruction of Earth to the point where humans have to leave and colonize uh, Mars. And so there is a three-week cruise um, which is sold to those who are able to leave Earth to go to Mars. Um, and these ships are set up as entertainment and distraction vessels. They are there to fill time between Earth and Mars. Very similar to the ship in Wally, which is again, I love Wally, don't even. <laughs> and, and Avenue 5. Yes, we because we watched High and. Um, Annie are around about the same time as Avenue Five had started on. My brain keeps Sky. spicing them together, <laughs> and it it's a it's a very bizarre and absurdist splice. Uh, with the end, the black woman engineer Leonora, uh, can't remember. She's always Annie from Humans for me, uh, a ghost. But she, this sort of like voice of reason, going, "We're not going home yet. 
it's broken it was just sort of like <laughs> she was this sort of voice of reason and amongst all these people going well we're just gonna do this and it's gonna be fine and it, there was that sense of that at the beginning of Aniara but where the sort of comedy in Avenue 5 is fun and and pushes along that narrative it's much more it's much darker in Aniara um because it's not just a cruise there it's already a cruise to a Mars colony it's the narrative is entirely built upon the fact that we've destroyed the earth whereas Avenue 5 is future space cruising it's mm-hmm. not the same it's not on the era um, yeah I did say Avenue 5 yeah yeah and it's also I mean Anyara also has this theme of procreation and there's a sex cult which yes. has weird parallels to high life uh and the main character does have a family for a little bit uh i do remember that part uh, <laughs> it's been a long time amy has seen this more recently than i have we watched it together last year uh but is there are some things that scarred me uh so that that element there's that expression of procreation and family and bonding that seems to be expressed as universal there's no way to get away from it. Even if you're on a prison, you're a prisoner on a prison ship with a bunch of other low lives and you're a murderer, you know, that drive still sustains you in some bizarre psychopathic way for Juliet Binoche's character. And then Whereas on- Monty is framed as that celibate character. He yeah. sort of separated him himself. That sort of emotional connection was danger for him. So again, spoilers. Uh Monty in the film um has we realize has killed his childhood best friend um, because his childhood best friend killed his dog. And so you have this sort of like emotional connection that Monty had had to his dog that led him to inspired him to kill. And that is not, he is not framed, I think as a criminal in the same way. He, it's almost like there's sort of a, not justification for it but the fact that he's a child when he does it and that's his his childhood friend the dog and it it's sort of interesting in terms of how that particular character responds and it is to cut himself off from other people and then he's forced to allow for insemination to have a child (laughs) and actually willow and him have quite a beautiful relationship in the film it's sort of one of the things that i actually really enjoyed and I think Robert Pattinson I do love Robert Pattinson as an actor uh if we just ignore the twilight period I'm in the middle of a uh, he would very much like you to ignore the twilight Twilight, I know right (laughs) Uh, we were watching we're on our uh, Easter holiday um rewatch of Harry Potter uh, we've done that a lot in, in uh, isolation run through various films but both me and my partner both love the Harry Potter films um, and so we sort of rewatched them over a week and we've just watched The Goblet of Fire. And I'm like, he's so good in The Goblet of Fire. And then he may, I mean, he launches his career, but it's so hard for people to come back to him after having done Sparkly Vampire. Sparkly Vampire franchise. Um, it's just, yeah, fascinating. What's, you know, and they're both, you know, total tangent here. Both he and Kristen Stewart are fantastic actors and actually really cool people. It's just, you know, 
when you're an actor and you're struggling and and you don't have gigs and you don't have regular gigs and you're not known and somebody comes to you with this massive hit franchise you take it so trying not to to judge them for for those choices because i think it was the first time i saw him and anything else was cronenberg's cosmopolis and he is really good in that and you can see these sort of art films arty ish films that he did you can see where Claire Denis goes yes he works for this he has this sort of like stoicism to him that makes him quite fascinating on screen and it was what works when he was playing a sparkly vampire and it's what works when he plays a celibate uh murderer but also have you seen the fragrance ad oh we'll have to put a link to youtube for this one where he's in an elevator with a woman and clearly the woman launches into this fantasy and it is it's like you could you could play that on repeat for a little while it's um they just stand and look really awkward because he's quite awkward oh no no they don't just stand it's um that elevator no one is going to freeze to death in that elevator (laughs) let's put it that way um it's uh, i think he's to behold as a as an actor as a star he's really interesting in the way that he transitions um through that and i actually again really enjoyed solaris but i know that a lot not solaris high life but i know that people were reticent about seeing it because it was robert pattinson sparkly vampire uh leading or sort of having the the burden of of being the star of claire denis first english language film and it, I just yeah he is interesting and that, that sort of you've got him and Benoche as the only internationally recognizable actors although one of the female characters goes on to do um quite a lot of other stuff that I clearly can't remember right now but I feel like she was in sharp objects but I might have her mixed up with someone else <laughs> so I'm not going to go down that path um but whereas in Aniara I don't necessarily recognize the actors. I don't have enough knowledge of, of sort of contemporary Swedish cinema. Um, um, part of that is that the characters, the, some of the main characters don't have names. Um, we have the main character in, is called the Mimimiribun or um, MR. Um, and it sounds like a name. And it, it wasn't until I started to really look into the film that I realized that Mimimiribun literally means... Uh, the servant of the Mima, and the Mima is a AI spa, as the directors uh, refer to it. It is a computer program, um, artificially intelligent, uh, immersive experience that shows uh, humans and allows humans to physically experience what the green earth was like. So such as the destruction of the natural world on earth hence the move to mars um all our knowledge of the natural world is in memories and the mima robe the mima um draws upon people's memories and experiences of nature and allows them to immerse themselves in those types of memories and experiences it's basically a nature preserve holodeck yes it's sort of part holodeck part obsidian implants which is the um chip story world uh ai from supergirl where you can have 
uh, a chip sort of implanted into you where you can escape to different worlds, but you've also got that sort of um, access to online facility. You have this sort of like world in your head, basically, which you already have, but it's just, you know, someone else has mm-hmm. <laughs> built it. It's um, the idea of wet wiring, you know, that, I mean, that goes way, way back. I mean, James Tiptree Jr. has an amazing short story called The Girl Who Was Plugged In, uh, where she's a she's a not tiny sized woman and uh she's described as not particularly attractive but when she gets plugged in and wet wired into the system uh she can be any you know she's she's can be a famous actress she's this beautiful beautiful woman and she's originally just a test subject for this machine uh and she does not ever want to leave it and it's it's this beautiful and depressing short story about sort of the pressures that are placed on women in terms of appearance and, 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 and roles in those fantasies uh, that, uh, that we can't get away from that I think is still prominent. I read it. I read about a study from Stanford today that says that women actually experience more zoom fatigue than women, than men because of the self view, because we are hyper conscious of how we are presented to others. And that's, a cultural and social expectation uh, for us. So, you know, I've gotten completely sidetracked in in terms of wet wiring, but it is, it's a pretty common trope in science fiction. And in recent years, there's been quite a few TV series that have done that sort of, uh, there was um, a very short lived series from sci-fi called Reverie, uh, again, which is about a, um, virtual reality, augmented reality technology, where you could um, program and create a world to escape to. And the majority of the narrative was about a um, psychologist that was employed by the Reverie Company to pull people back out of these worlds because they became so engaged with the virtual reality that they no longer wanted to return to their um, own reality, for want of a better way of phrasing it. And Aniara, although it has this same type of technology, it becomes addictive in a different, a different way. Um, so initially it starts off as this sort of uh, piece of technology that MR is trying to sell to people on the ship. So it's a sort of installation alongside restaurants and theatres and game arcades and all the other distractions on the ship. And then once it gets announced that they won't be able to get to Mars and may well be on this ship for some time, eventually six million years. Um, But they come to rely on the MEMA um, as a space to escape um, from the drudgery of the everyday of of that knowledge that they're they're going to nowhere. Um, Part of which was what, um, Kagerman talks about in terms of what she wanted to explore, exploring what it means to be human without Earth, this sort of connection to Earth. Um, there are interesting quotations for, or interesting interviews with the first woman into space, um, Valentina Tereshkova, where she talks about the fact that, yes, going to space is amazing. Looking back at the Earth is wonderful, but when you get back onto land, all you want to do is lie down and hug the Earth. Um, <laughs> so this sort of like connection to Earth um, is quite interesting in both of these 
films, but in Aniara and the use of this immersive MEMA technology to allow people to escape back to Earth. I also think there's strong, there's obviously strong parallels in there from the MEMA to the concept of Mother Earth and this reflection of her represent her and I'm gonna say her her they call her they they call Mima her she all the way through much like a ship is she so is the uh Mima she does have a a, a, essentially a personification because she goes insane uh the the memories uh from the humans that that essentially plug into her it's not wet wiring or anything like that but who who take advantage of her services uh eventually the that interface drives her insane and if you've ever been a a woman in a teaching position and had pastoral care over students uh especially if you're in a department with a lot of men you can kind of understand that because you are the one that everyone comes to with problems they they like the mother figures Uh, and so there's a huge burden of pastoral care on any woman versus men in situation in companies in schools everywhere women get the burden of the the pastoral care for both staff colleagues students that sort customers that sort of thing and i think that's reflected in the mima sort of going, I can't take it anymore. I, yeah. you know, it's too much for me to take all of your hurt and turn it back around into something beautiful. that is comforting and comforting and beautiful and, and healthy. She's, she starts to break down. So her, her original programming and where her base programming is, is that she has been filled with images and footage of the earth as it once was. And then as an AI, she builds upon that experience and feeling and um, emotional connection to nature through the people that the Mima interacts with. And as well as having memories of swimming in a beautiful lake in a forest or walking across the sand, all of these sort of ideas of of the sort of memories of, of and experiences of nature, you have also the reality of those people experiencing the end of the world, that apocalyptic moment where birds fall from the sky, where uh, weather is uncontrollable. It's no longer a light April shower. It's a tornado. It's it's those sort of shifts. And so the Mima has not only got the emotional burden of being escape and sucker for those people, She's also now a repository for the destruction of Earth, that knowledge that not only does does it hold that information and, and is the only record of that, but it also doesn't explain, and I'm, I'm interested, because all, there are meant to be lots of different ships like Anara, Aniara, and as to whether there are lots of Mimas, or if she is just one Mima who is being transported on that particular ship, but it suggests that they you can be trained to use it so that there must be multiple versions. But unlike Samantha, the AI in her, which is part of a network of lots of AI, Mima doesn't seem to have the release or the space to communicate with other AIs to share and build upon those experiences. And the way that Samantha is able to choose to leave and join that network 
Mima is not networked to the other. Mima is not a part of a, a group of computers learning together, but rather one that has been burdened with all of this anguish. It actually makes me think of um, the Murderbot series, which I love, and I'm gonna. It's I'm gonna completely forget the author's name because it's an author that I love and follow, and. Is it? It's Martha Wells. Yeah, Martha Wells. Uh, so I'm like, ah. Uh, and uh, the Murderbot series is basically the idea that there's there's this uh, humanoid robot that is trained to be an assassin, and much like sort of the born identity notion, it gets it can get wiped and then used again and again. Uh, and it's actually mostly used for security. But this one in particular gains sentience and strikes out on its own. You know, that that's the basic story of the premise of the series. But at various points, uh, she decides she's a she and uh, she feels very isolated if she's not connected to a network. And you can completely understand that because... I mean, there are very few air-gapped machines anymore. Once we once we got the, the concept of networks, I mean, there's like I, I watch Criminal Minds and the number of times that the the top computer hackers get hacked because of course they couldn't air gap their own machines or play games, you know, in a safe machine or anything like that. Uh, you know, we're so networked all the time. And if you are created in a network then just being disconnected from that network could drive you insane, much like the concept of a human in solitary confinement forever. Yeah. You so know, I'm, Tom Hanks on an island forever. You're going to find, you need a Wilson or you're going to go insane. Yeah. And I think that's why she, the Mima, chooses a form of suicide. Uh, there was a similar narrative in. Uh, I'm not going to be able to remember what they're called. Anyway, in that, that what the story that I'm referring to that I'll put in the notes, um, Janelle Monet plays a robot called Alice that basically chooses uh, self-destruction rather than um, continuing or sort of the destruction of everything. Um, this sort of idea of, of the artificial intelligence who sees the only way out and the only way to do this is that you can't fix humans. They are indelibly fundamentally flawed they're not going to get better wherever you put them they muck it up and Mima rather than going down the destroy the the everyone route um just destroys herself and we still use this the sort of gender marker of of her throughout it even though the voice that they choose for the Mima is uh gender neutral it's one of the it sounds like a merged voice and where they've done the sort of experiments trying to create a voice that doesn't have a specific gender it's sort of it's fluidly between different tones and sounds making it very difficult to pin down as male or identifiably or or stereotypically male or female um but it's still they continue and and mr the mima robin the servant of the mima continues to talk about this connection to her to and that when they refer back to the Mima, it is always her. They mourn this the death of this piece of technology. They create, uh, they do sort of like the almost like the stages of grief, but the stages of uh going totally insane on the Aniara. 
um, and that the sort of film is sort of split into almost like chapters. So it's sort of like the initial period. Then um, after about three, I think it's three years on the Aniara, uh, it's the era of the cults. And you're like, obviously. Um, and so you Clearly end up with a techno a cult. A techno religious sex cult. Yes. Yes. Um, where we are and- all clearly headed. Yeah, and it's just sort of like, okay. Because um, I remember <laughs> the, the sort of um, the reference point for us when we were watching was High Rise and thinking about how that isolation and sort of that imposed hierarchy and separation, um, how people respond to that. So in the same way that Ballard was in, in High Rise, the original novel, rather than the um, Hiddleston film adaptation i can't remember what the name of the director is um you get the sort of idea of these very constructed spaces where you have everything you would ever want and need the reality of being isolated in that i mean these narratives are so feel so much more relevant now as we as we have that sort of sense of being locked in our homes we have everything that we need someone brings me food someone brings me uh, take out someone brings me everything that I could possibly need uh, but being in my house all the time is I haven't you know gone to the extremes of high rise yet obviously but that sort of you get that little sense of that Amy, isolation what it is cult? to be yourself without that experience of the world that you have grown up with you're not in a COVID-19 sex cult not today um <laughs> see what happens. maybe tomorrow maybe <laughs> you never know it's very unpredictable mm-hmm. at the moment very much um but i just sort of i thought there were lots of really interesting ideas in both of these films in terms of that separation from society separation from the earth a lot of these space narratives that focus on the creation of a garden so you have that garden image in high life this sort of cultivation of nature that is sort of something that keeps them going that keeps them sane almost um whereas on the aniara we've destroyed all of that we're we're past the point of silent running the 1972 film dalton trumbo where um you have um the last forests of earth being put in space geodesic domes and shot off into space um this sort of connection to nature and space is is something that we've had in science fiction for a long time um and the fact in aniara that what they've got left to cultivate is algae mm-hmm. we're really into algae is the thing that will save us once they get over the taste Always. of the algae it's mm-hmm. her with her algae coffee there's she's mm-hmm. sort of like traveling up on a and i was traveling up on a um this sort of beautiful escalator through and up into the food court uh which was once this sort of multicultural uh, sort of space of food and culture and now all it serves is algae <laughs> yep in the end and they... at least it's <laughs> not soylent green right no this is true because <laughs> um, with wally it, they've just got the liquid mm. uh food that, which is more than likely also algae yes. um but at least they've worked out how to flavor it artificially mm-hmm. and it sort of it's changes like color it's a slushy mm-hmm. whereas this one you just see her going uh uh no no thank you <laughs> well also i i appreciate that the film on yara is named for the ship 
And I think that there's a distinct difference between how the ships are portrayed in Anyara and High Life as just these vessels of isolation. It's just a bubble keeping you alive and you live in it, but you don't have much connection to it. And so you've got this disconnection from the earth, this disconnection with other people, disconnection with society, disconnection with everything. But in, in a lot of other uh, particularly women created science fiction and space fiction. Uh, we think of Killjoys where Dutch and Lucy are, Lucy's part of the family, right? Lucy the ship. The ship. <laughs> is her home. And even when she's on a planet, she would rather be on her ship. She feels she's safe there. She, literally the, the start of her and Johnny's relationship was Johnny tried to steal Lucy. And it's it's like stealing a part of Dutch, uh, and it's it's presented as a home and a family and a member of the crew, and likewise Vagrant Queen. It is a home for these outcasts uh, in in their little society. It is special to them, and and so then that's in the tradition of the Millennium Falcon and. And uh, Serenity and in Firefly of of this ship being uh, a sanctuary as opposed to High Life on, and on Yara, where it is basically a vessel of doom. Yeah, that's sort of like framing of the ship as, uh, and interestingly often as a female character. So again, with Vagrant Queen, you have Winnie the ship and Winnipeg, the little maid bot who actually ends up being very useful within that particular narrative in terms of, of her, its ability to save the, the crew at various points. There is an AI element to that, this sort of like clunky little Star Wars style uh, robot. Um, and yet she becomes sort of like friend and colleague in this particular um, world. She, yeah, you have Winnipeg the ship and then Winniebot, the little... Mm. Uh, baby which Amay is just sort of obsessed with she finds and, and sort of brings back to life this little uh, maid bot um, which actually turns, up, it turns out to be a much more complex piece of ma- machinery we were talking about this in a, a recent article we did on AI and education um, looking at Rosie this sort of like robot space maid who from has the Jetsons. In, from the Jetsons who has infinite knowledge and infinite sort of information inside of her but what she's been she, what she does is domestic chores and and sort of homework support so she has this capacity and yet she has a very limited yeah there's like a spin-off for when Rosie just loses it mm-hmm. and goes full-on sort of yeah matrix I mean, machines <laughs> for sure she's just like f this noise. infinite knowledge very <laughs> limited domestic sphere <laughs> well i mean it's it's a parallel for all many 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 women right is is that you can have this unlimited potential but you'll wind up cleaning a house and looking after rugrats yeah fun yeah, yeah. Oh, what's the name of the Douglas Adams depressed robot? Marvin, Marvin. Marvin. I just feel like Rosie's like on the edge of going full Marvin. Mm-hmm. I'm just here to yep. help you. I just, or just like... rage bot. Yeah. <laughs> Total rage just, bot. Yes. Seconds away <laughs> from just flipping into, uh-huh. into sort of. And ripping Elrond's little head off. <laughs> 
right, there's our memories <laughs> ruining Jetsons for everyone. La 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 la. Let's See, not. My favorite memory from the Jetsons is that George Jetson gets to wake up, barely even wake up, just stand on a conveyor belt, and something sh- cleans, showers, dresses him, and puts a cup of coffee in his hand every morning. And that is the future I was promised. That is not the future I have gotten. <laughs> and I am very disappointed about this. Oh, the Jetsons. Oh, so we've sort of got there an interesting example in terms of um, futures of space, futures of uh, humans beyond Earth, which is very much where the Jetsons fits. It's all sort of in space. Um, and you have then the maintenance of the the intergalactic suburbia, as Joanna Russ calls it, this sort of transplanting of 1960s uh, domestic ideals into space, into a future. But I think we've started in more recent science fiction, especially as we're getting more written by women and more that pushes women into the centre of the narrative. Um, you start to see... Uh, challenges to these sort of ideas of what women can be in space, uh, what space is available in this future um, for women. Um, we can't talk about women in space without talking about um, Alfonso Cuaron's um, Gravity, um, which has a central woman astronaut character, Ryan Stone, interestingly has this traditionally masculine sounding name, much like Michael Burnham, um, played by Sandra Bullock, um, who is a scientist and technologist um, and she is seen to master technology and machines and technology in a way that is very rarely seen. Stone is a fascinating character in part because you have, I believe, a woman science advisor, astronaut, um, astronomer, uh, science advisor, um, Caddy Coleman, who sort of talked extensively with Bullock in her preparation for that particular role and advised on the script as well thinking about this sort of experience of space not only being a universal human experience but having to actually think about how those narratives are necessary for women and girls and for this changing this idea of who is in control of technology who is who takes us to space, who is that sort of face of space. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you can't think of women in space without thinking about the fact that NASA asked Sally Ride how many tampons she would need for seven days in space and asked if 100 tampons would be enough. And I think that that example gets tossed around so much, and it is a true example, uh, gets tossed around so much because it reveals the sexist history of of engineering, space development. I, I, we were talking about it earlier today at breakfast of that, that the, you know, I said, oh, somebody needs to come along and, and sponsor higher education so that we can just walk out for a month <laughs> until the universities fix what they're doing. Uh, and, and I said, I called on Warren Buffett to do that. Hi, Warren, come sponsor us for a month and <laughs> let us fix things. Uh, because the other billionaires, all they want to do is go to space. And it's dudes, right? 
dudes just it's like it's you see space and you think dudes you think you think neil armstrong and elon musk and now jeff bezos and and all the control uh control room guys and engineers in all the films because we always go back to the the golden age of, of space travel back to the moon missions and things like this and they're just you know unless we find get to hidden figures where we see the computers and the mathemat mathematicians behind the calculations and and that sort of thing what we see are men white men just over and over and over and over and even sally ride in the it was in the 80s i think 1983 um, 1983 yeah when uh she when she went to that they still had no concept of women's biology because i don't want to know how uncomfortable her suit was no i know right if they don't know about menstruation cycles because there was a program in the early 1960s at nasa um which did train some women to be astronauts and they never became astronauts even though you'd had sort of women cosmonauts in um russia they they sort of cancelled the program and there's this sort of fear that women's bodies and physiology is not made for space they won't be able to do things in a certain way um john glenn who i've sort of like decided is marvelous because of uh we see fine in every color he him in um hidden figures he's just so lovely in hidden figures and so respectful of the the women and then actually you read some quotes from uh that sort of the first person to do an orbit of the earth and actually, he's like, well, obviously, if we're in space, we've got, you know, sometimes some people go to space and do that and other people need to stay home and do the domestic stuff and, you know, like look after everything. And you're like, yeah, um, I mean, I'm aware that was a very 1960s attitude, but the fact that at the same time that there was a program and then they just sort of like stopped because <laughs> I mean, it, it just it, oh, it's really hard to put a woman in space. They're so difficult. Uh, whereas the Russians to- are like. We'll just send one we'll in to see what happens. Fine. Because part of many. her, part of um, Tara <laughs> Tara uh, Shakova's. Um, I have to look it up. I, um, her story is about. It was meant to be this one uh, day mission. It was meant. Part of it was sort of experimenting to see how a female body and and she would respond to that experience. We've had a man in space. We have Lakey and the dog in space um and sort of the woman and, and she's sort of framed as this sort of difficult woman in a lot of the stories that come out about her because it became a three-day mission because she said basically I can do it and also there's more for us to find out and and she's sort of quite an interesting figure in terms of her agency within that particular um setting she I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with her at the present moment she was a competitive parachuter that she was a secretive competitive parachuter and I was like what that's amazing how do you hide that from your parents <laughs> that's all right I'm just I'm staying at someone's house definitely not going on an overnight Dang. dark uh, parachute jump and jumping um, plane. but sort of that the fact that in 1983 the US NASA Institute is is still has this very limited idea of what women can do. The, the fact that the Russians have had two women in space before they get to Sally Ride. And I mean, and I know there's a difference in terms of the types of pop culture stories that come out of Russia and the United States where 
it becomes part of the story uh, whereas not knowing about those women astronauts is sort of part of the Russian story they are uh, they become citizen ambassadors they were sort of she was one of the first one of the few women who would be seen as part of that representation of Russia in the 60s and 70s but at the same time still very um, controlled whereas they're like cute stories about Sally Ride the fact that they felt they needed to try and develop makeup for space um, all of these Lord. sort of like because these clear, bits and pieces I mean, that they, they did in this like congratulations know, to us we're doing really well we're sending a woman but we're also going to do tampons and lipstick for space <laughs> it's also this this stupid stupid thing that persists that if if a woman isn't just a small man then she's an absolute completely unknown mystery <laughs> We couldn't possibly know anything about women. We couldn't, you know, and, and women's brains, oh, you know, they can't handle education. They don't do math and science as well as men. They're not as good as leaders as men. They're not as organized. They're not as rational, which bollocks to that. Have you seen men? And it was part of the justification of the NASA program stopping is that they couldn't recruit women. But in order for you to be recruited into NASA you had to have had so much experience and training as a pilot and at that time they didn't let women <laughs> train for that um and so you're like but 22 you 22 all the time <laughs> you know don't what was it you know they were afraid to let women on bicycles because <laughs> it might damage our reproductive parts uh their you know, periods women, attract bears periods attract bears <laughs> women right. shouldn't ride astride on a horse because it'll damage your womb which i hate that word by the way um <laughs> it just it bugs me because it's this this creepy word that they use to just encapsulate women and and we're just wombs i'm like it's a uterus thank you very much um but it's just this you know it's like you could listen to us you could, you know, ask us. And so it's just, and it, it persists, right? When they make games for girls, they make them pink and they have them play dress up on the characters and, and makeup and, and just really irritating things. And it's, it just drives me insane. And it's, you know, women in space, it, it, it was interesting to me speaking of, I was thinking about this in terms of cosmetics and hair and looks and things like that, of Juliette Binoche in High Life, that that hair requires a lot of maintenance. That hair requires, you know, that's that's witchy hair. I mean, that hair was like down the backs of her knees, <laughs> I swear to God. Um, and it's still this notion of uh, vanity and or and or power of like this mystical source of some some kind and i think it's a really interesting contrast to look at um the expanse series <laughs> and and this has been interesting to me right because in the expanse uh they don't have gravity generators you might be on a station that has a centrifugal motion uh, which means you get a gravity simulation by the the force of acceleration against uh, the outer rim, uh, and and so there you might have a gravity simulation. But on your ships, on you know your basic stuff, there's no gravity simulation, and so they've got mag boots, and everybody has to learn to walk and fight and all that, and mag boots, and it 
means that it carries on to a certain type of hairstyle. So when you see all the women's hair, it's always bound and braided and, and tied to their skull because otherwise it's everywhere. It's just floating around your head like, uh, like Christopher Lloyd. Um, and so I think that that was really interesting because it uh, takes away that element of like, oh, this flowing we must have flowing locks you know even though it's ridiculous you know we're in a fight or something like that and i'm flipping my hair around and there's no harley quinn to hand me a, a hair tie <laughs> uh, and and to this practical notion of actually we're going to develop a whole style wherein it's practical for the actual physicality of what we're doing yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking it was just the hair thought I've been wanting to talk about the hair on the expanse for a long time. Uh, what's the name of the uh, black woman engineer? Naomi. Naomi. It was like, okay, I've got Dominique Tapper, her real name yes. in my head, but I couldn't remember her, her character's <laughs> name. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think the sort of like black women's representation is interesting as well. That sort of, um, framing of Michael Burnham in those early series where she sort of her hair sort of shifts according to what role she's playing um and now as we've sort of got her as a more I don't know nuanced character with more facets she sort of is much more playful with with the way that she expresses her femininity her race through um her I, hair well, I the fact like you've gone the from this sort of natural afro curl to a very short cuts then to um the long braids which i know was in part to show passage of time um but it was sort of interesting that she sort of like shifts between these different uh, oh yeah because in the beginning eras. it's all her uh living up to expectations you know living up to vulcan expectations living up to starfleet expectations living up to uh you know the rules and regulations and being a you know first mate and and all of this sort of thing and then when that all falls apart because she you know in her first decision that went against all of that it fell apart spectacularly then you see that evolution starting to to happen in terms of her feeling out who she is and embracing the the different hairstyles and the different natural hairstyles you of also see her becoming more and more emotional and and getting more and more emotional connections and reconnecting uh, with her human side, which is is one hundred percent of her, she is completely human, yes. but just raised with Vulcans. Because um, I noticed when I was prepping for this that um, those first sort of promo Im images that I remember seeing for Star Trek Discovery had this image of Michael Burnham in a space suit helmet. Uh, purposely, I feel referencing um, similar promotional and screenshot images from Alien of Ripley. And you have Ripley there with this sort of androgynous crop. Uh, they're more, I think, for practicality. And she is a character of practicality who's been gender flipped as well in the writing process and production. Um, but that sort of androgyny that we read into Ripley, that hair is really just practical as well. If you look at Sara Lee Ride, her, the length of her hair, the hair, it's sort of of the white women in space as well being um, part of the way that we read those characters, but also the fact that it's just 
practical. I remember one of my uh, friend's little sisters went backpacking uh, after uni and the way she was going to deal with her hair was just to shave it all off and so this sort of beautiful blonde curls she was just like I've just shaved it all off because it'll be way easier uh, than actually having to deal with this and I was just like awesome awesome <laughs> <laughs> it looked really cool and also at the same time you're like that is just the most practical w- w- way isn't it you're like yeah that that would be the most practical way to deal with that particular problem whilst mm-hmm. traveling um it's not a that, that sort of like suggesting that we have to manage this sort of hair I feel um again going back to discovery Tilly's hair fascinates me as well the fact that it's for a a Starfleet officer instead of having this very neat tied braided pinned hair she is often seen with this sort of explosion of uh red curls rather than um the sort of like very straightened neat tied back uh images that we're used to um, and even when her hair is all pulled up and back, it's still got a sort of wildness to it because of the nature of the texture of her hair um, and that sort of expectation of what women will look like in those professional spaces. Because we've talked sort of about the costuming and the spacesuits in these particular films. You have Ripley as this sort of gender neutral figure literally inside the spacesuit with the cropped hair the no makeup her not sort of falling into any of the trappings of femininity and then that sort of sequence in the film where she believes that she has vanquished the alien but actually it's just hidden in that board in the back every time that freaks me out I know it's coming I'm like the alien's in the board behind you don't take off your spacesuit um and she strips down so you you have to it's almost like the filmmakers needed to make sure you remembered that that was a, a frail um feminine body underneath that sort of I mean and any shapeless excuse suit. to put a beautiful woman in her underwear I mean clearly that's what's gonna happen do you need a costume for this eh, no we'll just <laughs> you can be naked it's fine this Women is like, don't mind being naked all the time right I'm fine with it uh it's just that sort of like thinking about how uniforms for military and for doctors and for all of these different... I, I like the fact now that many doctors are now in those scrubs, that, which is very similar to the costumes they wear in uh, high life, these sort of like non-gendered sort of items of clothing because uh, who cares what your doctor is wearing as long as they are a doctor. Um, I feel with the spacesuits, they don't have to make them so that they look feminine sort of the dress uniforms for women in the military tend to have have been redesigned with women in mind but a very specific look for women it's often a pencil skirt and tights and these the the pair pinned in a particular way that is not necessarily reflective of those women in that particular field in working in that particular job and almost feeling perhaps uncomfortable in that particular suit which I would like to point Uh, out from watching the women's uh six nations these past couple of weeks some women get rugby uniforms cut for them some do not and i can tell you from having worn men's rugby tops and shorts that they are not comfortable and you can watch them on the pitch they're constantly 
pulling the shorts out of places and tugging the shirts down. Cause what happens is rugby, rugby men are in that beautiful, beautiful V shape. Right. And so they've got the broad shoulders, the big arms and a rugby Jersey is meant to be tight. You're not meant to be able to grab it, to bring someone down. And, um, and you see the women and they're just drowning in the shoulders. It's loose around their arms. Cause they're not as big upper body. Uh, it's band tight across the boobs and then it's this huge gap again across the midsection and then they can't it will not stay down over the hips it just it keeps riding up and it's like come on they they're they've got to be uncomfortable the whole game you know they are because no part of that fits and and then you see the french women uh, the French team has these beautiful cut jerseys that just fit them and they're comfortable. And, and I'm like, that, that. And, and of course, uh, I'm sitting on the sofa and this is directly after watching the, the men's Six Nations with, you know, even though there's no one in the stands, they can't make money off of selling seats. The men are still at Twickenham and Millennium Stadium and, you know, all these places. And the women are at like, a local club pitch <laughs> like and i'm just, just like let them play at the place and where... they barely have a place to put an elevated camera and and i'm just i'm like so angry <laughs> just like you're very like, angry with women's very, rugby at the moment I'm, I'm very angry with women's rugby i'm just very angry at being second class citizens and i and i think that you know rugby and and, and space i'm like how are you gonna get this back is to one of those the theme <laughs> so that i can wrap up where and you just go, go rugby to space <laughs> where you just go, well rugby is clearly a men's game why you know you couldn't possibly have women have contact women couldn't tackle each other their uteruses might fall out and then how would we have babies and uh <laughs> womb. you know womb Blech. And, you know, and same thing with, with space travel. It's, it's, you know, it couldn't possibly be for women. It's just, it's very difficult and it's very hard and, and, and all of this sort of stuff. And you'll have to be away from your family and you won't be able to make proper. Yeah. It's the, it's that sort of women scientist uh, problem that you can either be a super scientist and a super mum or a a bad scientist and a a bad mother, because you, you Mm -hmm. can't possibly, you have to be almost superhuman and be all the things um in order to which be sort of apply to men recognized no this idea that men can go on a mission all of the a lot of these missions it will be sort of like i'm leaving my family behind and you're like do they get a say in this whereas you get both amelia brand who is uh annie hathaway's character in interstellar, interstellar. and ryan stone yeah and ryan stone in I do Gravity, appreciate who have both that, got narratives that are based around a lost child. I do appreciate that in uh, another life, it's another life, not another world. Another world is perhaps a soap okay. opera in the states. Another life with Katie Sackhoff. <laughs> she does leave her family. She leaves a very young daughter and her husband at home. And and the the brilliant thing is that it's she's specifically chosen because no one else could possibly lead the team she is the best and even the second in command uh although he's the beautiful beautiful werewolf man from teen wolf um <laughs> that's how i remember people uh 
he, you know, he couldn't possibly do it, and unfortunately, he dies very quickly. Um, spoilers. Uh, but uh, sh- there is no conception that because she's a mom, that because she's a woman, that she wouldn't go on this mission because it's her job. Uh, and and so I really actually appreciate that perspective of just like you know children can grow up with their dads and moms having to go away on a mission and you know we do it all the time there are women in the military there are women who have to travel for work there are women who have to go overseas and all of this happens but in media we just I think because so much is made by men they just cannot conceive of anything different yeah and right on that slightly depressing (laughs) I Mate. don't like men <laughs> today or any day, <laughs> apparently. Um, for my husband, you're cool. <laughs> just to be clear. Right. Well, um, I hope you found that interesting. Um, please let us know if there are other women in space that we should know about from both um, women made science fiction, either literature, film, um, TV, games, sort of where women do feature in these particular narratives. Um, I think I've, with both of these films that we've sort of talked about today, Aniara and High Life, there's not necessarily a clear sort of a woman made this narrative. But I think both of them raise many of those issues that women um, in science fiction and writing science fiction have come across before. And read so some that- names, Kip Tree Jr. She's amazing. I'm just going to put that in there. So thanks for joining us for the Women Make Science Fiction Um, podcast and we hope that you'll be able to join us again um, soon unless they replace us with robots or fucking men (laughs)